I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. During the pandemic, I've been doing a series of webinars to um, entertain myself, chat with my friends, and learn something. The webinars have been so amazingly successful that even though things are in some places returning to normal, I'm going to say in some places, um, I've continued to do them because it's just so great to be able to bring the knowledge and information from all these wonderful guests to my audience, to you. Um, today, my guest is Lucinda Baker, and she's back for her second webinar. We had to postpone it due to the fire. So before we get started, Lucinda, uh, just give us an update. I mean, I know you had those fires close by and there was a lot of smoke, you know, I mean, it's been a little while, but how are things going? Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for uh, joining us. Um, I The fires are not quite out, but they're burning deep into the forest now, so they're not around houses. Um, our fires, we've had some rain, so the oh. fires are really, really, and we haven't had our, the smoke that we've had, uh, but a lot of Oregon um, small towns are gone which was really pretty devastating for a lot of people. And we, a lot of friends lost their houses um, down in Southern Oregon. So it's been pretty traumatic, I think, for everybody, but things have calmed down and we're, you know, just everybody's kind of trying to catch their breath and moving on. Yeah, you know, the news cycle moves so fast that the story of the fires kind of has disappeared, but I actually knew someone who used to live in Talent and that town got devastated. Fortunately, she passed, and I, I just think it would have been so hard on her. She had a no, number of health issues, but talent really got hammered, and um, it's just really sad. I, and then you have to think about all the animals, the wildlife that, you know, you just, but nature's amazing because it does recover. It takes some time, but it does recover, so um, just keeping the faith there. So, Lucinda, um, give us a little bit about your background for people that didn't watch your first webinar. Well, um, I started writing when I was four, and I grew up uh, in a hunter-jumper world, um, and I always had the horses prepared for me. When I got to the barn, they were ready to go, so as when I got older, and I ended up having family, winning to university, all those things, and then got back into horses. I found I didn't know anything, even though I could go over any jump still. I didn't know very much. So I proceeded by a little tiny 14-hand um, Arab for trail riding. And again, I didn't know anything. So, I, you know, we had quite a few uh, amazing experiences. So about 46, I got back into horses pretty much full-time until now, and I'm quite elderly now, not really, just a spry thing, um, <laughs> uh, but it's been 30, it's been 27, 30 years now since I've been back into horses, and the, so that's kind of, I'm married, my husband's name is Chris, he's fabulous, we've been together for 32 years, um, I have two children, uh, they're quite, quite elderly themselves, and um, I have two grandchildren. And I live in Bend, Oregon. And so that's where we are. And, and you, got, you got curious about learning more about horses. And you've been on quite an interesting path learning from a lot of different people. So, you know, just kind of give us a little brief history of that so that we understand where we're going to go in this PowerPoint. Okay. So I started off at Monty Roberts 
farm in Santianez with the little Arab. And they kept saying, you know, you really should find out about natural horsemanship. And this was probably 20 years ago. And I didn't know anything about it. And then I started finding out about Dennis Reese and Buck Branneman and Tom uh, uh, Dorrance and all of the people. And so I started doing uh, clinics and I did about, oh, I don't know, two, five, year i don't know i did a lot of clinics and i really learned a lot about how to make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard how to get to their feet how to move their bodies and all of these things and respect and what have you but i realized there was something missing so i went ahead and continued to look for the behavioral side of the whole equation which was my mentor who i found 18 some years ago her name is martha kyle worthington and she's in france and she was the only equine ethologist i could find in the world and that spoke english <laughs> Um, so that was important. Um, so I have studied with her and then after a while I realized again that I was kind of missing a link that I wanted to know what was going on with all the neurochemicals that was going on and how long, why it took so long for them to come down after getting scared and all these different things. So I started getting into the neuroscience of it. And that was about 10 years ago. And then I met Dr. Peters, yeah. uh, Stephen Peters. And then he had written the book and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, good. I don't have to do that since I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, I, you know, it's kind of like the need was out there. And then once I went through that and I followed him, and then I met Sharon, which really completed the, my circle of what I needed in order to have enough tools in my toolbox that I didn't have to go to domination, that I didn't have to be dominant. I didn't have to, I didn't have to use dominance at all for attaining a task, getting a task done, um, whether it be getting in a trailer, whether it be going over water, through water or over a tarp, those things were no, I no longer had to make, I never, I no longer had to just use op operant conditioning, which it will, I'll get into about that. Right. If we don't know. So, but, you know, I, I just love the fact that you're so curious and that you kept recognizing that there was a missing link that there was a missing piece. And each missing piece led, leads to another missing piece. Because I think so many people get stuck in getting into one concept and then not questioning that concept, not questioning sort of the authority of that concept and, and asking the questions of, is there some other piece of information? Is there somewhere else I can look? And of course, people tend to get stuck in little boxes in their own discipline for sure. Um, and not look outside. And it, I think it's so important and it's so great that you went, wait, there's got to be another piece here and let's go look for it. So, you know, that's just right. Well, and that's right. And, and the, the thing that's interesting about this is that it's not my opinion. Right. These things are not my opinion. These things are science. And that's what I needed because I was getting so many different opinions from so many different people. And I'm like, well, who's got the right deal here? Who's, you know, where, I, you know, and I'm, as I was getting older, I was like, I don't have time yeah. to figure and it all, each individual things out. And if they were, sorry about the, yeah, the cat. Your cat's playing in the background. We're loving the yeah. But you know, <laughs> when I met Stephen Peters, I, I'll never forget that he's told me that 
you know, he asked five different horse, horse people the same question and he got five different answers and he said, there's, there's no way, the brain doesn't work that way. And that's what led him to look at the horse's brain as a neuroscientist, which we're so and, grateful for because again, it's, yeah. you know, you can't do something that's not already in the brain. You know, if that yeah. part of the brain doesn't exist, it's not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's what really egged me on and really helped me, especially with the ethology, because the ethology is a science and they actually have something that's called as they, a science that they teach at university, equ, um, not equine, but uh, neuroethology, that's one word. Oh, and yeah. they actually teach that now because as I'm gonna show, think they are not, I mean, they are and they aren't, they're together. Right. They have the same, yeah. Right, all right. Well, I think that's a great lead into your presentation. So we're all set whenever you're ready. All right, I'll do my screen share. If anybody, uh, when he, if anybody has any questions, I'm going to do the four quadrants individually and I'm going to stop at the end of each quadrant and see if anybody, maybe we'll take two questions or so if anybody um, had any questions. Let me just say for anybody tuning in on Facebook, we can't handle your questions there because I'm doing the webinar live at this moment. If there are any questions on Facebook, we'll try to get to those comments and questions later. Okay. You have to let me know if you can see it and if it's yep. big enough. And Just start start your um, slideshow and it should go full screen. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not sure what happened there. Enable external uh, content for this session. I guess so. <laughs> I have not seen that before. Ah, there we go. <laughs> there we are. Just like that. Okay, well, this is me, everybody, and I'm Lucinda. My last name is Baker, so I just lived Lucinda B. And because of the uh, experiences that I told you about and my journey, this has this is the end result of the journey, which is the mandala. Okay, and we're gonna find out all about that. Now let's see if I can get to that. Okay, so. There's no way even in a five hour um, presentation that I would be able to give you all the science. The, so what I'm gonna give you is at the top and maybe even the top of that um, and the science is all underneath it and can be uh, looked up or talked about uh, at a later date. So I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up. So if you got, if I have some people out there that are in the science field, you'll go, hey, but there's a whole bunch, you know, things besides that. And I, I can't get into that in an hour. <laughs> yeah. So we're just going to kind of skim the surface. So we have the biology, uh, the neuroscience, that's the nuts and bolts, the head stuff and sensory receptors. And then we have the emotions, heart and feel and sensory receptors. And then the communication one-on-one -on -one, group interspecies and finding connection. And then over here we have 51% getting a task done and doing the job together. And of course in the middle is you and your horse. Okay. So, 
I had thought about this for a long time as like, why would I even bother sharing all this stuff with anybody? Because it, it is like, well, what does it have to do with getting anything really done or being, or actually handling a horse? It's interesting to do something uh, and learn and research and what have you. But if it's not useful information, if it's not to be of use, I wasn't going to be very interested. And so once I realized that this stuff was of a use and I could use it to help people get their horses into the horse trailer or bucking or going through the water, um, that's when I realized um, how important and how useful this was going to be. So this is just that we're going to start with the very first quadrant, uh, neuroscience and the biology. And you, you, you might want to buckle up right now uh, because I'm going to get into some stuff that's going to uh, probably knock you off your seat if you haven't experienced it before. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so human and horse brains develop differently for critical issues to survive in their, in their environments okay or ours so we have two images here one this is our brain here and this is the horse's brain here and i want to talk about this one this picture first as this one here has a much larger frontal lobe area this is the frontal lobe area uh, uh, you mean of man because some people may not um to, if you can just be clear about what this is because some people when they listen won't know Oh, I see, because, oh, 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 yes, okay, so it's the front of the brain, so if you, when, when we're, when we're using our brains, we have a section of our brains that is used for executive function, meaning that we tell stories, we can plan ahead, we can play chess, a horse has almost no front, and that's called a frontal lobe. And a horse has almost none, almost no frontal lobe. Matter of fact, most animals don't have hardly any frontal lobe. So they have no way of coming up with a story. Like, oh, she came to the barn last time. So, oh, and I was so disappointed that she didn't give me that carrot. I'm going to let her know by stomping my feet. They, they just don't even have the brain. They literally physiologically cannot form those thoughts. And that's one part of it. Now, on the other part of the brain that's pretty important is the horse's brain has a has a cerebellum, which is five times the size of a human's. Now, the cerebellum, and that's at the, uh, the brain stem and just above the brain stem, and that's where that's located. And it has to do, for a long time, they thought it only had to do with motor function, meaning that where your legs were and proprioception and your balance and all that. They've been finding that it has a lot to do with body language, with learning. So those things are really important to remember as we're moving along, because again, that points out how different the horse actually thinks. They actually process information much differently. So if a horse would say to you, hello, how are you today? It would not sound anything like that. It might be sun, warm, you know, you know, an emotional feel of something. We don't know, but that's kind of 
It's very different. It would be very different. They, so they emotional recognize us, but they don't have the personality attachment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the emotional brain. Okay. So these, I said that they don't have any stories and people say, well, I know that when I came across that stream or the river and he bolt, you know, he backed up really fast and he remembered, and we think that's a story to them. It's an emotional memory different. Like in my cartoon here, I have a horse on a stream and he stopped and the little person is, in the stream has dumped the little person in the stream and the horses last time we came across a stream i got i slipped and got scared and the person says did you do that to me on person on purpose so that's kind of the difference of what these two species are thinking and how they do it and and the other thing is oops let me go, go back. back yeah because that's such an important point there yeah, this one here, this, yeah. uh, this, um, when people say, well, you have to get respect, or they say the horse is spoiled, those are actually stories. Those come from an executive functioning brain. They do not come from the capability of the horse's brain. The horse brain is not a planning brain. It doesn't know good. It doesn't know bad. It doesn't know better or best. And so that's really, uh, that's a pretty hard concept to get our, our heads wrapped around because it's like they are aliens. <laughs> so let's keep going. Okay, so nuts and bolts. We're going to talk about the autonomic nervous system, neurons and myelination, and the neurochemicals. So we've got a central nervous system that starts at the brain and goes all the way through to the back of the tail, down the legs. And it just so happens, I'm just gonna throw this in here, that we realize that all of the buttons that uh, um, Sharon. Uh, Sharon came up with for horse speak, all of them are on the central nervous system. Wow. So that's because it's, those are nerves. And that's had that's a real feeling center. That's where things are really felt. So it's really that was quite a thing. I'm gonna get. I need to move my little man here. Um, so it's a two-way communication between the brain and the body via nerve cells. Okay, well, we're just gonna keep going. We're gonna first talk about the autonomic nervous system, and we have what that is is. Uh, in the body, the, in, on that central nervous system, there is several nervous systems, but we're only going to talk about the autonomic. Um, and it has, it takes care of two sides of an equation. You've got the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest and very, very uh, quiet. And then you have the sympathetic, which you can see is fight or flight, okay, which is just off the charts. So, both of these different systems do the parasympathetic when the horses are quiet, when any animal mammal is quiet. Um, their bodies are they can they can poop, they can pee, they can have sex, you know, they can breathe, they can uh, drink and eat and digest. Okay, but when they've gone up into the sympathetic, all of those systems shut or or they just they just close down but other ones open up like blood vessels and the lungs they're getting ready to either fight 
or flight. So it's a biological thing that's happening. Um, and then we, so this is how it kind of goes. Um, uh, so it, and we're going to talk about homeostasis, which is right in the middle. Okay, between those two. So we have the parasympathetic that goes up and down or the sympathetic that goes up and down. And then we have homeostasis that's right in the center. And the homeostasis is brought about by a natural resistance to change when already in the optimal condition. So when they're just hanging out, and this is where most mammals are always trying to get to, no matter what is going on in life, we are all seeking homeostasis. And the horses know exception and so when they're just hanging out that's when their bodies are saying yes this is the correct state of being being to be in okay that's their biological bodies and that has to do with also calling we're also going to call it zero all right so they have feeling of calm they're aware but they are feeling very safe so where does learning, and I'm just going to throw this in here since we're here now, we're going to have a learning section about learning. But when you are, you can't learn anything when you are at rest and digest. And you can't learn anything, especially when you're in the sympathetic, when you're in fight or flight. But you also can't learn anything when you're asleep or you're not moving at all. So learning takes place just above when you're curious when you are um, seeking something, that's when that is happening. But you can't go any further into the fight or flight or you lose learning. You cannot learn anything when you are either in uh, the parasympathetic or in the sympathetic. So, so Lucinda, I have a question about that though, because when we're asleep, we're actually replaying and, and animals are, it's obvious that they're doing that too, because we can see that in dreaming. So, so there is a learning process that occurs during sleep. There's the, this, you know, building of dendrites and making new brain cells. And so, so is that, how do you, how do you phrase that then? That, that, that is what's happening is you have brought in information and it has stimulated the um, dendrites and the neurons and what have you. But when you sleep, it helps it go into long-term poinciation. And what that does, it helps it go and it helps it solidify. And you actually replay those things in the mind of what you learned. And a lot of times people will wake up and have a better understanding of something that they learned from the day before than when they so, were learning it. So then when you're talking about this line of learning, it's the actual activity itself being presented with an yes. activity itself. Yeah, a task, learning a task, absolutely. And that's my little picture of this. This is my one of my favorite pictures of this lady. I don't know who she is. And if anybody knows her, I'd love to say hi to her because I use her <laughs> a lot. Uh, because everything about that is correct. They're calm. She's, she's with that horse, everything about that, but we'll revisit that. We'll keep going. So we have the same thing. So it's important for us to understand that when we're resting and relaxing uh, and we're in our parasympathetic, it's really important to understand that we also can get into the sympathetic and get 
excited and scared or angry. And once you go up into the sympathetic nervous system, it can take two hours before, I mean, it can take a very long time to come back down to calm yourself back down or to start going back into the parasympathetic. That's why trainers, good trainers that have learned to work with young horses or feral horses, that they have a feral horse that goes up and is all excitable, but they don't stay up there with that little, they might go up for a second because it's human nature. It's called mirror, mirror neurons. We, we start to go, but you learn as a trainer to take a big breath and bring the animal back down to calm and to keep them and to work at keeping them calm. So we as trainers have learned to go up and come down, but the majority of people do not know how to do that yet, I say, because <laughs> that's one of the things that I teach. Okay is how to calm back down. All right, so the nitty gritty, we have the neuron here. Now, <clears throat> there's something like uh, billions and billions of neurons in a brain, okay? When we've got the dendrite, the whole neuron, that's the whole body of that thing is called the neuron. And then you can see from the um, illustration that there's the dendrite and you have the axon which runs through that those yellow uh, bits, which is called the myelin sheath. And those are very important because that is where, that's what is growing. The myelin sheath is what is growing when you are learning something new. So when you start learning piano, you start ding, 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 ding. And then the next day, a week later, you're ding, 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 ding. And then the next day or a month later, you're ding, ding, ding. And then in 10 years, you're ring. But all of that is a being accomplished over time by the actual growth of the myelination on that axon. And what that does is it makes it so the information that you are bringing to your brain from your body and your hands and what have you is able to transmit faster. It's like it becomes a super highway and you're able to, and it goes into long-term potentiation. That's what that, that's where that goes. So, so what then what we're looking at with that myelination is we're looking at creating habits. We're looking at creating a habit. Well, that's an interesting way of saying it. And I'm going to think on that. Because, because well, yes, well, a habit is something yeah. consciously and rapidly, you know, like playing the piano, it becomes a habit to play a chord or play in a certain yes. way. So, yes. Um, it's actually interesting because you, you can practice wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you add <laughs> that in. <laughs> and it's the same. It goes to the same place and the same yeah. thing. So that's why, yeah, and we'll talk about that more too. So then we have the neurochemicals. Uh, and these are really handy to get a general idea about only because that when you're putting a bit of pressure on your horse and you know that when they have gotten the right response and you do a release, that is a dopamine hit. That means, and so I'm going to come back to this slide for a second. I'm going to go to the next one and I should have had this one first. Um, so the dopamines are reward, attention, short-term memory, and motivation. Okay. So that's the very first thing that happens is boom. And then you get um, 
uh, serotonin goes to the well-being, reward, learning. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, you get the final dump of an endorphin, which is the feeling of euphoria, which is the kicker towards long-term potentiation, meaning it, it, that's the thing that really gets it to go into that brain, okay? So I'm going to go back here for a second. Okay, so this is uh, the neurochemicals. This is the end of a dendrite. Okay, these are two separate dendrites and the bloodstream is carrying all these chemicals and they're dumping inside and out of here. And the reason that I am telling you this is because when they're learning, um, this is going to be, I'm going to come back and, and talk about this again when they're learning. This here, I put this image of a tiger in because whether you would want to or not, you if you saw that tiger coming towards you, you would get an adrenaline dump, of a heavy adrenaline dump, and that would send you up into the sympathetic nervous system. What's happening right now with people with the coronavirus, and a lot of people don't maybe recognize it, but a lot of people are, are unfortunately are staying up into their sympathetic nervous system without even knowing because they, their, their brains, their bodies, people's bodies, animals' bodies do not, the brain is just an, a, a machine, not a machine, but a entity up there. And if it didn't have a body, it would not bring in any information to it. It has to have the body to bring in all the information. But when you do that, um, if your story, if your story is not recognized of being real or not, so our 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 bodies are feeling the COVID world, going to the market, getting in the car not being able to be next to people we're up in that sympathetic nervous system all the time right now and our brains are just taking what our bodies are doing and going oh yeah you sure are you better get ready to run you better get ready to fight or run because of it where in reality the COVID is not maybe right here right now. And so we always feel like the tiger is kind of coming on us where we're not even conscious of it. And this is where a lot of people are having heart problems, having breathing problems, having uh, immune, you know, they're getting, you know, something, other things are happening. So that's important thing to, to keep in mind for everybody just moving along through life right now. And it's happening with the animals too. Yeah. So putting it together. Okay, so I had the biology, and now we're going to go ahead and go into the okay, equine ethology. So before yeah, we go, go there, I, I have a question for you. Um, sure. So someone was asking about, you said that, that it takes a horse two hours. We're trying to figure out, is it a horse or a human that takes two hours to come down from a high sympathetic um, burst? Any, any mammal. And then that, but we can learn to regulate that. In other words, I yes. think that can go up and come down much more quickly, but yes. it's a question of learning to toggle that parasympathetic sympathetic switch. Yes. Yes. And you can learn it. And it's interesting because you can learn it for one situation. Like when I'm working with a wild, with them working with a BLM Mustang and they're smashing against the, you know, railing or something, but 
if I go out and I somebody swerves in front of me, I might not be able to bring myself down as quickly as I can with that Mustang because I've learned that my body and my mind have got that bringing that so it's sectional. So when you're able to learn how to bring it down with a horse, that doesn't necessarily mean you have learned it for everything in life. And of course, that's where meditation comes in. That's where all of that comes in and can be quite handy. Right. And that's one of the things that somebody's asked, how do you teach a horse? But the surefoot pads, that is one of the things that we see they do. They teach horses how to toggle the sympathetic parasympathetic switch. The horses learn how to let down and they associate the pads with letting down. So it can be a trigger to, for the horse to come back down out of sympathetic, which is one of the fascinating things about surefoot action. Yes, yes. And that's the dopamine and the serotonin. That's what that is. That's that dump. Yep. Yeah, cool. So we've gone over the biology whew, really quickly. And now we have the horse's worldview. Ethology is the study of any animal behavior. We, of course, are doing equine ethology. And we're going to start putting these quadrants together because I found, like I had said before, that just to do focus on the ethology or just to focus on the biology didn't, didn't quite make a whole picture on when I was working with the horse or when I was when I work with a horse. So we're going to go into the worldview. So the worldview, what does that mean? <laughs> um, like, we're going to attach that worldview with the biology of the brain to the information that's going to be coming in from the outside world. Okay. So connectedness in a biological is uh is imperative okay so these two things are not separate which i have said so horses are were built and developed their world developed their behavior from their world so they have a really important to be in a group they have like when they first started off they were these little tiny animals that were maybe only a foot high and they had very short noses but over time they went from the forest into the plains and their noses elongated so that on the top right uh picture here on the screen on the, the they, they were able to eat and still keep an eye out so that's how those noses got so long and then for the speed and the caution and the agility that was self-preservation and then you had the equides they need to feel secure and they are always on high alert always and especially when they're isolated and we just got a horse in here to the ranch that had been by herself for um seven years mm. and she was so tired mm. when she, she uh, first of all she started losing weight i mean like she was pretty much skin and bones so she's in here for rehab but the very first thing that she did was she lay down because she didn't have to stay she didn't have to stay aware for herself she didn't she all the other horses around her were able to take over for a while for her to have a real rest and she it'll take her six months to to get that full get back fully but she's on her way so just, um, so can, just to point out dr porges is the man who came up with polyvagal theory uh, talking about vagal nerve and the whole uh concept of the 
myelinated and unmyelinated portions. Just for anybody who's heard previous webinars, we've talked about that, that before. Right, right, thank you, yeah. So no matter how long a horse leaves the herd, it, it leaves behind everything. It needs to be in homeostasis. And remember, homeostasis is all important to a horse. Calm is all important to a horse. They leave security, companionship, food, water, and rest, okay? And I have this lady here up top right. She's having a bit of a situation. Um, and this situation on with this lady with the horse rearing, that's gonna, they're both gonna get frustrated. And um, unless she knows some of this stuff, that's not gonna end well. And either the horse is gonna get scared and just pull away and run or something's gonna happen. That's the picture's gonna go south. Where the picture on the bottom, um, that's a little horse that I uh, started a long time ago. And he, you can see our feet are in unison. So he's calm and I'm gonna be able to do quite a bit with him in that, with his mindset opposed to this other horse where she's got, she's not gonna be able to get anything done with that guy, maybe for months. <laughs> okay, so marbles in the marble jar. I'm gonna talk about this really, really quick if I can. You have a jar, empty jar, and you have marbles. The story goes that the more the more little things you do around your horse, let them scratch, let them look around, uh, acknowledge their concerns. All of those things are trust marbles that go in to the marble jar. You then, maybe you come the next day and you forgot the carrots. Well, marbles come out of that marble jar just because that's important to them, okay? And so once you get the marble jar completely full, that's when you see people riding without a bridle or a saddle or what have you. So having marbles in the marble jar and getting it filled is to assure reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. So you're building trust with your horses in order for, to, for them not to buck you off or to run away or to not get into the trailer. So when we want all those things to be okay. So this is Frederick Pognon. He is, um, part of Cavalia, he started Cavalia. And he, this man has all of his marbles in the marble jar with almost all of his horses, um, especially the performance horses. And he's always building it and building it in there. So that's what that's all about. And, and can I just say that, so for, now, for those listening, you know, life isn't perfect. And sometimes we put marbles in and sometimes we mistakenly take marbles out. And right. And that's okay. It's just a question of we then have to do something to put more back in. Yes. And thank you for clarifying it because that's very, very true. It's like you just make mistakes. But when I make a mistake with my horse and I admit it and I go, oh, dang, I am so sorry. I know for a fact, just from my own 30 years of watching them, they're like, okay, but don't do it again. Yeah. Intention has a lot to do with the way that <laughs> <you're> it. Exactly. <laughs> So the worldview, so we have, um, again, the sensory receptors are everything that's coming from outside. So sense, uh, touch, uh, taste, uh, smelling, eyes, ears, stretch receptors, that's where 
your muscles and what have you are moving. All of these things um, are coming in and being dumped into the brain in different parts of the brain. And that's where we get the information whether or not to be go into the sympathetic or the parasympathetic. One of the things that's very interesting in the oil factory receptors, which is the nose, that actually goes for to its very own part of its brain directly. And the reason that that was set up with that in over time or developed is because smell tells a horse there's a fire, the other horse is in estrus, the, it gives them immediate information to act upon. It doesn't have to go through. So if it needs to run or it needs to act, then it can go directly into that um, behavior. And they're actually starting to use uh, horses for scent animals. Absolutely. They're Absolutely. realizing how powerful their sense of smell really is. Um, and it's fascinating that they're starting to do that now. Yes. Absolutely, no question. Yeah, I have I have uh, several friends that do that on in search and rescue. They actually use the horses for search and rescue. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Sight. Horses have the largest eyes of any land mammal. I just thought maybe that would be a little bit of information that might be fun for people. Okay, larger than an elephant. <clears throat> larger than an elephant. Wow. Yep. Any land animal. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know. I've seen a lot Isn't of that interesting. But well, and you know, <laughs> the thing that's interesting is um, uh, we are so sight oriented. Mm -hmm. But and you would think that they had such big eyes that they are sight oriented. Like that's their main thing that they depend on, and it's not which is very interesting. And I think it's a little deceiving because, and I'll explain why in the next few slides. So on this one here, we have binocular vision. So I have a picture of the whole horse from a drone shot from above. And then I have right in the front of the horse's face, right in front, there's an area and right, right directly behind the back of the horse, both those areas are blind spots. Out from there, there's binocular, binocular vision, and that goes out to, I'm trying to describe it for your listeners, I'm going to say that they have about 80, or no, I think it's 60% of vision with the binocular, monocular. Then there's something that's called a monocular vision, which goes all the way from there, all the way to the back of the horse. And so they have about 340 degree, um, uh, they can see 340 degrees at any given time. Without turning so that's, that picture to fix, without. Turning. Yes, yes. And then if I've got a picture of a human here, we can see about 90 degrees to the side and then up and down is about 45. So, the reason that this is so important, again, is because we as humans, we count on our eyes a lot. Like if we see a little flicker somewhere, we turn our head to that flicker. Whereas a horse is scanning the environment all the time because that's what they needed, of course. And we'll get more into that. 
So a horse with its head held vertically will have, it, that's how it sees when it looks down. When they can see with that vision, but they have to have their head up. Again, that's important, whether you're going over a fence, you're going over a log, you're going through water, you are acknowledging uh, their concern out in the forest, whatever it is, having that information and understanding how they see. So when you're approaching an obstacle and you keep their heads perfectly straight, they can't, they have a very difficult time get understanding the depth perception of where they are and where they're going to land so you a horse that is really good at going over fencing and landing well and setting themselves up for the next fence they have their heads tilted just a hair so that they can really really get a good understanding of the depth perception of where the ground is coming because if they're scared they're not going to do very well in that next fence and it's only going to start going downhill being hunter jumper i relate a lot to that and it might even be just going over a log so let your horses have a, their head a little bit and let them tilt their head don't try and keep them straight so the horse's view of a jump, okay? So we see the jump very clearly, the whole jump. The horse sees a blurry image, except for at a very small space of where they're focusing. And that's when they're tilting that head a little bit, okay? And that's because their eyes are much flatter. And I can't get into the whole uh, world of how the eye is developed because we don't have time. Oh, what does it say there? Oh, yeah. No, that's good. Okay, Dr. Jones. That's um, a horse, horse brain, human brain. That's Dr. Janet Jones. She just wrote a book. Um, and I, I, anytime I use anybody else's uh, stuff, I give them credit. Great. Thank you. So light sensitivity, this is something that people have no idea of. I don't know anybody that I've talked to except for Janet, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Jones. Um, so when a horse is going in, their eyes are really good at seeing at night, but any kind, and they're okay at seeing during the, in the daylight. But what gets them is going from light to dark or going from dark to light. But we're just gonna talk about going from, from light to dark. It actually, Hey, so when I was in when I was in the hunter jumper world and I was uh, doing um, uh, excuse me I thought I turned everything off but I guess not um, when I was in the hunter jumper world there were two places that you would um, get ready uh, to go into the arena and a lot of times the arenas were indoor arenas you could either just go ahead and be out in the outside uh, or exercise area and be going over or you could stand inside the arena and watch the other people and it were it was dark and the horses they found that stood inside the arena while waiting and then went in were way better and and had way less faults and they were less scared everything about it they were much more calm because they they because it can take up to 45 minutes for a horse's eye to adjust from light to dark. 
So when you have a horse trailer that you're trying to get a horse into and it's pitch black inside and you're pushing them on, they literally don't, sometimes they don't know if it's, if they're an old hand at it, they know after a while because they have learned that that trailer is dark and it has a floor. But if it's a new horse or a scared horse and a new trailer, they might not absolutely know that that floor is solid. It looks like it's a hole to them. So when you're going in and out, and that's why Temple Grandin put, Temple Grandin is an ethologist, and she went in and helped the cattle, the people that that were working on the slaughter yards or the whatever, um, to get the cattle to move easier and without less with more less stress through the um through the uh aisleways and the way she did that is she put a light at each turn so that they could see the floor because before they would get to that end of that and they would stop because they couldn't see if there was it just dropped off or it was a hole so this is this is again we've got some science it's a really good point um i i know one vet clinic where all their floors are the red rubber brick as opposed to black because the black looks like a hole the horse doesn't want to step in the hole Um, yeah yeah and yet all our trailers are black rubber mats aren't they (laughs) yeah I have a light. I actually have a light in mine. I actually put a light inside mine, a pretty bright one. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, has the horses have limited ability to see? Um, I have an illustration here with a green apple that we see and a red apple that we see. And then I have a, a, what they know the horse sees based on the study of the eye and how many cones and what have you that they have um and our green is kind of a yellowish to them and our red is even more of a deadish gray 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 yellow so that's why they paint um jumps different two different colors so it has contrast so if your horse is stopping at a red jump it's not that he sees the red it's that the rider does Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, red does mean stop. Yep. <laughs> okay. So categorical perception. Um, when we see a hose, so this object that is on the right, which is a, just a wound up hose, belongs to a category of things such as water hose. Its particular orientation at the moment is of less important to us. So whether the hose is wound tightly or it has been pulled out and has just been used, to us it's always, a, it's always a hose and that is called categorical perception. Horses don't have hardly any categorical perception. So I have another slide just below that that is kind of a yellowish gray because again, that's what they, that's kind of what they see. And every single time they come across that hose, it is suspect, even if they just went past it an hour ago. So when I hear people say, I don't understand. They just went past this hose, hose, cut it out. You know, you know, it's a hose. It actually is not the way that their brains work. Their brains go, hmm, that I don't even know about past because I don't, I can't 
I don't understand about past and present. All I know is I got to take care of myself right now. And that could be potential snake. It could be a potential something. So I got to check it out. I've got to smell it. So that's why they're blowing out. Because when a horse blows out, they're clearing their um, olfactory uh, area sensors in order to be able to take a breath in to see if it really is something that they should be run or get scared of so the, the so, typical line that a rider does says is you should know better and what you're saying is no they shouldn't no because they don't know that when we say you should know better that's a story yes and they don't know story correct there is no story in a horse it's so just, there's yeah there just is and, and we'll, we'll keep going i'll talk about that yep. so smell okay so when they're smelling poop um, the, identification, the identification of that can either be calming or not. So it's an emotional response. So when they're smelling something, um, they might be identifying whether to run or whether to stay. So being aware of that <laughs> when they're smelling or when they are snorting is really important and really a good idea. So smelling poop. Uh, when they smell poop, they are one, they're finding out who is it, what kind of animal it was, was it a threat, was it a horse, how long ago was that animal there, the sex of the animal, what direction it was going, if the animal was in estrus, uh, emotion, the, emo, the emotional state of the animal, and the health of the animal, they are getting all of that information and that's why they seem so intent on wanting to smell poop because it's like opening a book for them on their self-pres it's giving them vital information of their environment because other animals are leaving poop that either could have a lot of um, cortisol in it and maybe be scared right then so then they know to maybe be alert Okay, so there's huge amounts of information in poop, and I suggest that you let them smell it. <laughs> so, working together for the protection of the group, we have ears and eyes. So, when a group of horses are all together, a lot of times they one will stand north, south, east, west, and they might be kind of far apart. They stand so they can see that. So their bodies, because their bodies, because they can see 340, they don't necessarily need to have a sentry um, east, north. They just need to be spread out so they can cover that territory. And when they hear something, their heads don't move because their pinna of their ear can turn 180 degrees. And their eye and their ear follow each other all the time so if i hear if the horse is listening to something behind me that eye is that eye is working at focusing that's a little bit of a misnomer the word focusing but i'm going to use it for our human brain is directing attention all of it is directing attention to that sound or that movement okay on the bottom slide here this is my horse Sion, and i was actually talking to him and my friends were across this uh, uh, field. And so he was paying attention to me with his eye on me, but he also was paying attention to them and keeping an eye on them. And so they had the capability of doing that, not just with their ear and eye, but with their brains. So 
ears. Um, they can, don't listen. Can I just add one thing about eyes, Lucinda? Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, um, and it's part of that iceberg below, but that, you know, so many, so many people say, well, the, the horse, you have to switch eyes because the horse can't transfer information. But in fact, horses have more cross neural hemisphere uh, uh, neurons, like their eyes cross both hemispheres is what I'm trying to say. They, that Absolutely. they take information from each eye and it goes to the opposite hemisphere. So it's not this one eye is seeing one thing and the other eye is seeing, uh, they have more cross brain connections than humans do. Yes, yes, they're using their whole brain yep. for all of this. Yeah, yeah, thank you, that's great. That's a myth, so, we've had it for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the ears, one of the things that, again, I said is, uh, as humans, our eyes are our thing. What is the thing for the horse that they really like count on is their whole body. When they are listening, they are not listening just with their ear. They're listening with their ear. Their eyes are there, their body. They're feeling the vibration on the ground through their feet. Everything about them is focused on that object, on that sound. And so, um, yeah, so that's, there you go. Okay, the impact of music. Uh, jazz and rock has shown to create gastric ulcers. Uh, the cortisone, the reason they know that is because they played the music and then they, uh, the horses pooped and the horses um, had much more cortisol in their poop. Um, and so that was, they knew that it was much more stressful other than country classical and I am assuming reggae. I put that in because I, I figured that reggae probably was okay too. Um, <laughs> all of those things have a calming effect, which is very interesting because when performers do um, performances with horses and music, a lot of times it's classical music or it is, it might be country music, you know, if you're at a Western show or something, very rarely do you have jazz or rock going on when horses are performing. And they, because people just, they figured it out without really knowing, but that is a good thing to know. Okay, down-regulating of the sensory cells. So the sensory cells on, this, on the outside of the horse. So I have a picture here of a, a person um, on top of a horse with their leg, and it's just a picture of the leg. It's a picture of the back of the horse uh, with a human leg onto the side of it with spurs, okay? And um, somebody says, well, are spurs bad? Um, no. No equipment is bad or good. It's how it's used and the understanding of what happens when it's abused. So when you have spurs on a side of a horse and you are using them and you're not using them delicately and for fine tuning, but you're using them for maybe a behavioral, uh, trying to get a change in behavior, what is happening is after a while with those spurs going on the side of the horse, it actually down-regulates the cell so that it actually becomes numb. They're, they become actually, they have no feeling in that area after a while. So it's completely, del, it's del, um, 
depleted the neurochemicals in that area. And it takes a while for all of those neurochemicals to get rebooted back up into the neurotransmission area so that they can go ahead and start feeling that area again. So if you have spurs and you, you, you numb that down, you go, well, I got to go get bigger spurs, sharper spurs. Uh, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to, it's not going to change anything. So anytime you use equipment or what have you. So that's why people who, when you see a writer writing, like I have a picture of Mag, Maggie here um, on one of her Andalusians, um, then she has almost nothing on the horse. I mean, she has a, a little rope around the horse is that all of the information that she's giving that horse she's barely having to touch that horse. She's barely shifting her body because she, she never went to down-regulating all of those sensory cells. So they're still very hyper and very alert to any kind of movement or cue that she's giving. And that's where you want to ride from. That's where you want to be from. You want to ride from these light, light, very delicate cues and it gets difficult because some horses when you get a horse they might not have experienced that so you have a horse that still needs spurs or still needs a crop but you can change that because you can change it because you can bring back that feeling to that animal but they have to learn to feel it again okay that's a lot of info for you guys. Okay, so I'm going to go back to this um, uh, slide again because I want to talk a little bit more about not so, um, yeah, I'm, we're going to get away from the sensory and we're going to talk about the herd. And this is, I see this a lot. People will say to me, well, I don't understand. We, I, I got the horse, I, I, everything was going okay. And all of a sudden he started bucking. And, I'm, and they're like, I don't know what happened. Well, that horse had been actually telling you that they were not comfortable and they were not ready for the next step when you went to go halter them. It was 20 minutes ago that that horse had been trying to tell you something. But because we are not aware or cannot be, we have not been taught to be aware and see the horse, a lot of times we're just looking at the horse. So when I say see the horse, I'm saying I'm scanning its body. Is its head up high? Is its head up low? Is it walking stiffly? Is it walking with a cadence with me? Are we together as a unit? And all of that happens the very first moment you go and you halter your horse. So just remember, when you halter that horse, it does not become an autonomous being. It doesn't go, oh, great. We're going to go and do a lot of work and I'm going to come out of homeostasis and we're going to go and do all these things. Oh, how wonderful. No, they're going, oh my God, I'm leaving everything that I care about that's important to my safety and to me feeling calm and I'm going to go with you. And that's where marbles in the marble jars comes in and is so important. 
they start learning that, oh, we're going to go do something. She's, this person is supportive of me. They acknowledge my fear. Oh, they're there for me. Oh, I'm okay with that. Let's go do something fun. And I think okay. one other thing there, Lucinda, that since horses can't tell time, it's really important that they that we don't that they get to go back to their herd and they have that experience of leaving and coming back. So they realize they're gonna go back to their herd. You know, I think yes. that that's something that people miss is they 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 miss the piece that the, the horse needs to know there's an end. Well, and the thing about that is is your, is your intent. Yeah. The word the word that you said was intent. Okay, because there are times that they don't go back. True. What if they're going away forever? But the intent is you're still safe and calm. Right. You're still safe and calm with me. You're still safe and calm. I'm going to support you no matter where we go. And I say to, I will sometimes even say, you're going to be coming back here. And they, some of the horses, I'm pretty sure, have, have know what, they don't know what the words are, but they know what my intent is. Absolutely. And my body, body language is. Yeah. Okay. So don't leave your horse behind, please. So when you go and get them in the, in the, the stall, the barn, the paddock, make sure you stay with them. Make sure their heads are down, they're calm, they're, they're focused with you, they're not pulling back, they've got forward moment, motion. You went to go get your horse. Now you are being, there, keep the marbles in the marble jar. You better stay with them. Because if you don't stay with them, um, you're, it's not going to get any better <laughs> from wanting to go in the trailer or wanting to go uh, into the show arena. It doesn't matter. But if you keep the horse with you and keep them calm from the very, very beginning and keep them with you, you will have much more su success rate no matter what you're doing, even if it's just going in and grooming. Okay. And then we talked about marbles in the marble jar. But I'll talk about this again. There's a picture of a couple of horses here and one of the horses. And so when I go and get the horse out of the paddock, I've got all these horses around me. I have a choice either to go through those horses or to go around those horses. Now, if I go through those horses, I'm putting the horse that I'm leading in danger. And I'm putting them in a precarious situation because the other horses could very easily turn around and bite them. Or put their ears back. They've got to negotiate. They've got to figure out what to do with those horses while being uh, on tethered onto my hand. So now we've complicated their, their navigating in the situation. So if I have a horse, I've got to go get them. I think about everything from then on. I go around the horses. I make sure the horses are out of the way properly so that they don't get... Um, they don't have to deal with it. And it's the same. So if you have a clear idea of what you want, pictured in your mind, there's a picture here of a horse going through um, logs and, and what have you on the ground. I have found that people who stay and actually their front legs, their, the, the person's legs become the horse's front legs and they'll actually move their leg and their, their whole little, their, body of the human moves with those steps and lifts and thinks about each moment to get through that scenario. Once you're out of that scenario, then you can go back to just kind of being at a, 
a, at a place, but if you're going to do a task, you better stay with them if you want that task to be done well. Okay, and, and this person here on the bottom with the rearing horse in front of the noodles is, that's the opposite. <laughs> so, honesty, matching the insides with the outsides. I like to talk about this real quick because uh, we want the horses to behave a certain way. Unfortunately, they are watching every single thing we do, whether our eyes, our, mo our mouths, our phones, they're, they're checking out every single second that they're with us. They're checking out where we are at. And because we are all over the place sometimes, it takes them a lot to figure out what we are. When you have a horse that's been around people a long time, they just let people do all this stuff until they say, okay, come. But a young horse or a Mustang or what have you, they're watching all the things and they're actually moving, could be moving with you, trying to see what, it, what motion you're making. So being quiet with your ropes and all of that, that's all important. Even So when you are feeling like, when I have, when we have new people come here, they've never been around horses and they're scared. They'll go, hi, how are you? Oh, okay. I say to them, are you worried? And they'll say, oh yeah, I'm scared of horses." I said, can you let the horse know that? So I say, go ahead and say you're scared. And the horses will put their heads down and do a calm down, calm down, calm down motion because they're saying, yes, thank you. Because all they want you to be is honest. You want the, they want the insides to match. Because otherwise, you come across as schizophrenic <laughs> to them. You, you, you look like you're crazy, you're crazy and they're not going to feel safe and calm. But if you admit, I had a terrible day, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm generally going And oh, oh, hi. And then you can address them and maybe be a little bit more relaxed, or at least they know where you're coming from. And they're not on, you know, they're not wondering. So there you go. Learning their language. Now we're in quadrant three. This is horse speak. Some of you might have watched Sharon Wilsey, some of her programs with Wendy here or know of her. This, Sharon has not, Sharon is not an animal communicator. This is the actual language. And I have to tell you, when I first got a hold of Sharon's book, I don't know, a couple of years ago or whenever, um, I thought that she was trying to tell me that she was an animal communicator, meaning that she just could read the horse. She just could go like this and know what the horse wanted and it was communicating psychically with her. And I wasn't, I'm not interested in that because that's not, it didn't, wasn't backed up by anything. So when I realized that this was actually the language, that's when I became interested because that meant I could learn the language, whereas I can't learn animal communication. I don't, I'm not sure how I would learn how to be psychic. So when I realized that it was one of the things that was missing from the biology from the horse's worldview because even though i understood and had some of those tools in the toolbox from all that information i didn't actually know what was what they were saying and therefore i couldn't i wasn't able to react and also is still having to use dominance 
I at, think at, at uh, just, to, just to back you up on that, um, Lucinda, I think Sharon is probably one of the most astute observers of the horse that I've ever met. She, well, that's right. And that's the, that's the thing is what she's done is pick up on these super subtle uh, physical expressions that most of us, we see it, but we didn't acknowledge the, the, the meaning of it. And she's well, codified that meaning in a way that's teachable, which I think is one of the most brilliant things that's come along in a very long time. Well, I think it's, I think it's going to change the world because people are going to start realizing that all animals are talking to us. Right. <laughs> it's not just horses. So it's really an important thing. So I am, you know, I'm working on getting certified being, uh, a, you know, a certified teacher. And so I've gotten quite, into it with everybody and um once unfortunately once you start talking to your horses and they know that you know i have 30 head of horses here on the property and i literally sometimes have to walk from the house to our we have a shop i have to walk with my head down because i can't i don't have time to talk to anybody and they're all going up and down they're moving their legs or you know and i'm like no i can't talk to you right now so <laughs> Cause they all have wants and needs and they know that I now know that they have those so I can respond to them, which they never had that before. So it's quite a thing. All right. Horse language. This language is a structured system of communication, meaning that because of uh, Sharon's observations and her writing down and observing, she has written something down, which is called an hypothesis in science. And, and then what is, happens once you write a hypothesis, you hand that hypothesis or that written material to somebody else and you don't say anything to them and they are able to create and get the same results. That's science, okay? That's what we have been able to do with Sharon's work. That's why we know that it is science-based, even though it's been done on observation, okay? So we now know that there are buttons or different parts of the body where other horses are talking. So um, horses, of course, don't have any hands. So they use their eyes to point in directions, okay? So there's a whole bunch of different... Um, body they're talking to each other's bodies at different points on the bodies all the time all the time and it could be a big conversation of get out of my way i want to get to the hay or it can be a real locale like i really would like to step into that corner but i don't mind if i take a while to do it okay it can be slow so you have fast moving and you have real slow but they're always always talking <clears throat> The button of the middle body. So we, these are just the buttons. And again, I can't get into how this all comes together because we don't have 10 hours. Right, but there's lots of information about Sharon's book and her book, Horse Speak, is available everywhere. Yes. in so many languages now. So um, yeah. you know, just go follow up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you, yeah. So some of the first gestures that we do learn is uh, you learn by mimicking or mirroring them. Um, I have a picture here on the bottom left of a little horse, two horses, and one of the, the black horse is actually pointing its eyes and its energy to the go away button, which is on the cheek. 
and that tells the other horse, do not come into my space. Then I have a horse with two horses uh, doing the greeting, which they are touching noses, and that's how horses say hello. And then at the bottom there, we've got bubbles and boundaries. Every horse has a bubble around them. Every horse works off of that bubble around them in their communication. So just go keep finding out about Sharon. So here we have bubbles. Okay, so what do horses want? What do they horses value? What do they have to say about it? Okay, of what when things are going on. This is a drone shot. And I've done a lot of drone work. Um, and when I first did this, one of the things that I noticed, and I don't have any move moving video on this on this presentation, but when you see these horses move in a group, it's like looking at fish. They never go in a straight line, ever. Unless they're going out to the pasture or running away from somewhere. So that tells you something because what do we always do? Go in a straight line. We're very, go there, see it, go there. Horses are, maybe I'll just see how this feels before I get there. So they're always checking with each other. They're moving around, they're bouncing off of each other's bubbles and they're initiating a conversation. So we have, when they're talking, they're initiating a conversation. They're, in, they're in, introducing a thought or an idea and then they're negotiating around each other and then they're actually navigating that thought okay and we like to look at their whole group the whole herd is like they're on a chessboard okay so you can again find out more about that so then we have uh, so when you go into a herd the thing you're doing is you're going in and you're greeting them then you're going somewhere then you're grooming and gone and that's the four g's of horse speak which is important because what do you so now you know that they have bubbles around them now you know they do certain ways with their heads and what have you but what does that mean what do we do with that what are they doing so that's answers some of the things because when you go into their paddock now you have initiated a you've initiated a a, a thing with them so they are all going, oh, this is a new thing that's been initiated. And then you're going to introduce something, whether to go get another horse or just move them out to another pasture. And so they're starting to negotiate with you on how to position themselves. And then at the end, they're navigating what you're asking them to do. So all of this is going on when you walk in just the same as it was going on when you walk, before you walked in. So there's a lot going on out in a herd that you don't maybe think about before you go out there, but they've had a whole life out there without you. <laughs> so realizing that you are initiating something helps them communicate with each other on where, how to, how to negotiate what you're asking them to do. So that being said, let's say I can talk to the horse. I understand uh what's going on in their brain i understand their worldview but we got to go to the vet <laughs> and this is where it comes down to the nuts and bolts for real how can i take all of this information and actually make it useful 
The bottom line is I got to have 51% of the deal because if I didn't, we would just both stand out in the paddock and not do anything at all. They would be perfectly happy. So I'm the one who's doing the initiating. Once you be, once the entity, the one, is saying we're going to move now, that entity becomes the 51%. But that doesn't mean in the horse world, it's really important for those marbles in the marble jar to acknowledge their 49%. And I'll tell you the story about Sion. And this was the same field. We were going to cross it. My friends were uh, ahead of me and they were saying, we're going to go across the stream. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming. And we started to walk across here and you can't see it, but there was a log a little bit further on. And this big horse who's 16 feet tall, I mean, he's 16 hands and he's does everything. We've done everything together, mountains, everything. And he wouldn't go over a little tiny log. And I'm like, what is going on? Now, I could have made him go over that log with spurs, prop, whatever, and got him to go over. But instead, I said, hmm, there's something going on, dude. What's up? So I walked around the log and looked back, and there was a beehive. Ooh. Horses can hear, see, smell, feel way better than we can so that 49 percent is really important to pay attention to really important they are your partners out there whether you're in the show ring or you're on the trail if you can see them and feel them as a partners a real partnership that it, you guys are just in your own little bubble you're your best friend and you are doing the task that will help get the task done way better learning to learn this is the last quadrant okay so i uh, the norm is with natural horsemanship the norm is pressure and release okay and that's also part of operant conditioning okay the thing about that is is i change that to release and pressure because in order to really get that job done, and I'll talk about that more here, is that you first have to calm down. You first have to get in your mind what it is you want. Because if you don't know what you want the outcome to look like and be, there's no way that horse is going to have any idea because they'd be perfectly happy, again, to be back in the paddock or out of the field. Okay, so it's your idea. So you're initiating it. You're inducing. You're you're doing an introduction. So you gotta fall away all the way through with the negotiation and the whole deal. Okay, so horses are complicated, emotional. They're conscious. They're curious, dependent, dependent on each other, on you. Willing. They're willing to go off a cliff. They're willing to jump. They're willing to hold three women on their back uh, or five, five women on their back. I mean, these, these animals are incredible. They will, they will do just about anything we ask them to do if we ask them in the right way. They're learning machines. That's very important. And they're born naturalists and they're very cognitive. The nat born naturalist means that they are so in tune to their environment. They know, okay, so somebody said, well, a horse is smart. And I said, well, okay. So you're in, I put you and a horse in a desert and I leave you and you're a hundred you're 50 miles from water, but you don't know which direction it is. Who are you going to go off on your own? Or are you going to follow the horse? 
Okay, but then I take you to New York City with that same horse and put you in the middle of the city and I say, go find a bank. Well, who's smarter now? So it's not who's smarter on what, on our idea of what is smart. It is, the, it is what is smart for the moment. So again, going over that log with the bees on the other side, who was smarter? Sion. Okay, but me navigating to get there in the trailer driving the car, I was. So it, it's a dependence on each other, and that's important. Okay, so learning. This is one of the things that um, I'm not sure everybody really fully comprehends. Horses never stop learning. So therefore, they never stop testing. So when I hear somebody saying, well, I don't know, they just keep doing this thing. They just, you know, I can't get them to that. Well, they're testing. They're trying to see how far they can go. Uh, can they, you know, can they get, they, can they get done with this? Because they remember every day you come at a certain time of day and you work for 45 minutes and all of a sudden you're working for 50 minutes and they're like testing to see if maybe you've made a mistake that... <laughs> It's time to go back. Whatever is the situation, they're always testing. Like a little baby, they have to test their environment all the time to stay alive. That's in their genes and in their brain. But we can use that for learning. So what are they testing for? They're testing them for relationships, consistency, understanding what is wanted from them, comprehension of the whole the whole feel of what you want you looking for a steady leader so that they know that there's going to be that consistency they're also looking for resources food when they nibble on the ground mating companionship that's the thing being with you and space those are the things that they're important really important to them and it makes them feel safe and when they're safe they're calm and when they're calm they can learn you cannot learn when you're in the sympathetic nervous system or when you're asleep, okay? So tools in the toolbox, we're gonna talk about, well, we've talked about herd dy uh, dynamics, and we're gonna talk about how to teach a horse how to learn, operant conditioning, associative learning, imitation, shaping, and the release, and informal learning. Fixing the fence. So this here, let's see if I was able to get it now. That's too bad. Oh, oh yes yeah. no it works oh but the people at the other people that are only listening can't see this no but that's okay they'll have to then come back and watch it hopefully it's oh. gonna play though around <laughs> uh, around around we go yeah maybe start describing it while we're waiting it for it to load oh. i'm gonna go ahead and and do that again because i didn't see that little uh there we go this is a mommy and a baby, and she, mommy's going to use operant conditioning, and I'll explain what that means, uh, in handling this little baby's insistence that he gets the pile. And mama says, yeah, yeah, you're not, no. She's going to say, whack. <laughs> this is amazing footage, actually. <laughs> so she's like and it's not over yet he's saying oh he's doing his little mouth going really i'm a, it's okay it's okay i don't want it and he, she's going yeah you're too excited still you're not calm 
And she, so she says, when you calm down is when you can be over here. Until you calm down, this little rodeo is not over. Her ears are back still. And she's giving him a chance. He, she's got her ears forward. And she's like, okay, you're calmed down. You put your head down a little bit. Okay, so she, she released that pressure on him when he calmed down. And that's what horses are doing to each other all the time. Operant condition is stimulus response. So if I have a whip by a horse and I'm holding the whip and the horse has never seen a whip before, and doesn't react to the whip. But then I take the whip, raise the whip, and smack the whip on the ground, and the horse jumps. The next time I raise the whip, the horse jumps. I don't have to actually do it on the ground. That's the basics of operant conditioning, and that's the pressure and release. So a mama, so horses under, and it's also called uh, displacement displacement is, is very natural to a horse. And that is that, that pressure and release. It's also called shaping. So babies, mommies teach, the only way they can teach a baby to do something or not do something is by putting pressure on them. And then when they have done the right thing and they're acting and they're behaving correctly and calm, they take that pressure off. Well, that's the same thing with when we want to get it so a horse doesn't downregulate is that when we want them to move forward, we want to start with as little a pressure as possible on their sides. And when they start moving forward, we quit. So when that, when you quit that instant that you quit, that is to a horse saying, that's exactly what I want you to do. Otherwise, they have no idea what you want. Okay. <clears throat> so that is, has to do with, oh, I don't know what, let's see, maybe if I, let's see, no, no, get away. Anybody? Okay, that is the next one. Okay, sorry. Oh, dear. You go away. Okay, here we are. Learning by consequences. So positive. So operant conditioning is also called negative uh, reinforcement. And it's an unfortunate word because in the science world, that makes sense. But in an emotional human world, it means that it's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. Um, that is actually, so if you hear somebody say, oh yeah, operate conditioning, oh yeah, that's a negative response, know that that negative response just means that it means pressure, okay? So then we have positive reinforcement, which is food. Might be food, might be even saying, uh, good boy, nice, good, you did a good job, that's the way to do it. A, a reinforcement of any kind of uh, uplifting or food that is um, positive reinforcement and that's learned that's with clicker training um, but you horses respond they found that horses respond 70% when they're learning to people's voices so when they people get angry with a horse the horse starts shooting up into the sympathetic and starts shutting down 
But if a person will support the horse and talk them through the situation, so if they're going over a log, like this lady on the right here, she's going through a, learn, a log, she is going through that log with that horse. Again, she's not leaving the horse alone or on its own. And she can be saying to have step, good, good, next step. That's it. We're on our way. Here we are. So she's not saying good boy, good boy, nice horse, good boy. She's actually helping the horse by supporting it with her whole being and her intent and her words. But they do find in a study that words matter. Wow. And it's you know, not because so many trainers will get after people for talking to their horses. No. And it's how you talk to the horse. Like I said, if you're talking to the horse by a nervous, good boy, oh, you're a good boy. It's all right. No, you can do it. I know you can do it. No, that's the wrong voice. Yeah. So that's why trainers, I think, because they don't know to tell them to use the right voice. And the right voice is like you're dealing with a little two-year-old trying to climb up something for the first time. An encouraging voice. But see, I find that I talk to myself all of the time since I've been on lockdown. I guess because yes. I'm talking so much in my job for 30 years, you know, yes. teaching students. So I find myself talking, like, because I'm by myself with the horses, but I'm talking to them all the time. Yes, yes. And I've yes. been Which called is a talker by trainers, you know, oh, you're a talker. <laughs> I'm like, hey, big deal. But now, now I find out it's a good thing if I, obviously in the right tone, which it is. Um, yes. I'm, I'm sort of self-talking all the time, but thank yes. you. Thank you. That made my day. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. And it's really important to understand that. And uh, yeah. And it's interesting because the majority of trainers that say that, I mean, I don't mean to go there, but are men. Yes. And men are very non, you know, it's just the way it is. They're just, they don't do a lot of talk. Women do a lot of talking, yeah, a lot of talking. Uh-huh. And, and I think it's... Um, just to kind of clarify the, the um, operant behavior, as I understand it, positive is when you add something and negative is when you take something away. So it, yeah, it's a stimulus. Um, well, now you've got me. It's a stimulus response. Right. Okay. So then when you got the positive reinforcement, it's just, uh, it's just a response. Okay. It, you know, it is unfortunate words, and I have struggled for a long time to try and keep it straight in my brain. Um, and maybe we can come up with some sort of shorthand to make that clearer for people at some point in time. You know, it's really difficult. Yeah. I, but but when, when, I'm, when I've got the full, you know, when I'm doing a two-day clinic, that information oh, yeah, of course. comes up. The other thing is I think that what people don't realize, and because I started looking at this one day, and what I realized is that in any given cir circumstance, you could be using all the quadrants. You could be releasing pressure or adding something in, or, you know, I mean, it's not a straight line, and it's not like we do only one thing. Like, I think good trainers are using the combinations of things. You are ahead of my slides. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You're right. Bing, 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 bing. You get the gold star. <laughs> so the bunny rabbit story. There's two bunnies. They're in a field. One bunny is jumping around and playing and having fun and rolling and eating. And the other bunny is barely moving. Eating a little bit 
and moving a little bit. A coyote come. Which rat, which bunny does the, the coyote go after? The one that's moving around so much. The one that's expended all its energy. So that is has to do with prey. No prey animal wants to be caught without energy. That means that conservation of energy, staying calm, being in homeostasis is of utmost importance and the highest thing on their list. So when you go and you ask a horse to go into an arena and do a million circles and you wonder why they have gotten don't want to do it anymore it's because it doesn't make sense to their brain at all or their nothing about it makes sense to them because it feels like it's just doing it's not just they don't know they're getting ready for a show they don't know that they're getting physically fitter doing something they don't know any of that so that's why training now people talk more and more about keeping it fresh do four circles the best you can but then go over a couple of cavalettis and then go to something else and then have a rest and let them go ahead and absorb what has just happened okay so these things you want to have dwell time in there but when a, you take your horse at any time and do a job with them they feel that intent they feel that oh we've got to go and fix the fence yeah it took us an hour to get to the fix but that was the intent and that we've got a job to do they love having a job to do if that's what it, the deal is they don't like mindless work because it scares them okay they don't feel safe and so horses prioritize conserving energy they've got to be able to feel like they can do a dead run at any time and be able to get away from the lion <clears throat> so observational learning observational learning is one of the things that um, they're using more and more and people are starting to understand more there's something that's called mirror neurons and that's when i'm standing face to face with somebody and behind that person i see a tiger coming and i i react and the person in front of me reacts as the mirror neurons because i because if we're going to survive the tiger coming towards us i don't have time to say to you oh by the way there's a tiger coming so we need to run you automatically see what i my reaction and i start to leave and you come with me those are mirror neurons and it was we came up with them and developed them for self-preservation so same with the horses same with any mammal so if you want to teach a baby to go into a trailer use mama well, as long as mom is okay with going in the trailer. Yeah, right. if you want, yeah, if you want to show them and if you want to mimic, have them mimic because they are great mimickers. That's a number one thing that they are is they mimic really well. They mirror other their other horse extremely. That's ingrained in their world because it makes them feel safe. So then you've got the uh, social learning, which is down here where they're all going into the stream bed this is our trail course here at Bentwire. Um, they're going into the stream bed 
together because there's a couple of horses behind the Palomino that were worried and a little nervous about it. So when you're going across the stream, that's why they're mirroring the horse in front of them. So if the horse in front of them loses their cookies, well, there's a good chance you're going to have a, your horse is going to lose the cookies too, if they're nervous, if they're concerned. So then you have imitation learning, which is basic, basic. Uh, I see you doing it. I think I'll do it too. And that, but they're learning. They've learned to learn these ways. So humans daydream about 80% of the day. Horses daydream zero. So while we're off in our little brains going, oh, that's so great. Oh, I really like this day. Look at how beautiful it is. It's so wonderful out here. I just can't, oh, I wonder if I got the laundry done. I can't believe I left that, that shirt out of the laundry. The horse is going scan preservation, scan preservation, scan preservation. And they're just waiting for us to come back. They're, they're not sure we're going to come back with them. So that's why after I daydream for a little bit, I come back or I touch my horse while I'm daydreaming. Because if I have my hand on a part of their body, if I'm on top of them, or if I'm on the ground, if they know I'm physically, they know that I know that I need to be connected to them. If they make any kind of movement with their body, with their head coming up or anything, I'm going to snap out of it and come back and be part of the self-pres world with them. Okay. So they need to know you're connected all the time, even when you're not. And I can just do a hold. If I'm on the ground, I might put my hand up and just what Sharon, we call hold hand. And that just says, I'm here, I'm still present, I haven't left, but I am thinking about the laundry for a few seconds. This is very important, and the majority of people have no idea about this, and this is one of the most important things that I hope you can take away from this. A horse processes one thought in one to three minutes. We might process a hundred thoughts in a minute. So this person is showing, I'm showing her going over through a little obstacle thing. And this is the very first obstacle and she's waiting there for him and everything is cool. Well, she marches right over to the other obstacle that's only a few feet away and can't understand why he's not there with her. Well, he's still bat processing the thought that they just had before. She's all got, she's all ready to go through 30 of them. He's still going, I'm still figuring and getting this all together of what we're doing here at the beginning. So that's why I say to you, make sure to take your horse with you. Because if your horse isn't coming with you, they have not processed the thought all the way in order to feel comfortable to move forward. Okay, and without them feeling comfortable and calm to move forward, what's the point of trying to pull a 1,200-pound animal to do something that they're going to be worried and scared about? Or present so, them with more concepts, you know? I mean, they, they need to, we have to think of teaching them a concept at a time, not most. Yes, and that's very important because they think in things of beginning, middle, and end. So we think of things as 
I can do 30 things and that's the beginning and the end. For them, that one obstacle is a beginning, getting initiating, I'm introducing to going over it, okay? And we're going back to our four or, or three things and inter, in the introduction. So you're in that one segment, you're getting something done. Then you're starting a brand new thought, a brand new segment. So when you see somebody that's doing these beautiful performances with horses with no bridle and no saddle and they're out and they're doing this, they broke when before when they were working on that, on that whole program, they broke it down for the horse into small little segments, just like you would when you were learning a dance. Yep. And so if they, everything that all, every thought that a horse has has a beginning middle and an end and again five seconds later a beginning middle and an end and if you pull them out of that they start going up in the sympathetic nervous system getting scared and then you're done you you really can be done for so using all the tools here you go this is for you wendy using all the tools in the toolbox that's what that mandala is all about that's why i put the little stick figure in the middle with the horse because when you're working with a horse you're not working with a thing you're working with an emotional complicated insecure self-pres willing entity so you use all of these things when you're trying to get a task done, whatever the task. It could be high-level dosage. It could be just going over some sticks well, whatever it does. Because this, all of this information has not, is not a new training mm -mm. technique. This is information and tools to help you solve your own problems. So when you get into a pickle and you say, why isn't this horse going into this horse trailer today? It goes into the horse trailer every day. And once you get some of these concepts and start understanding some of this stuff and you can start talking to the horse and you can start listening to what they're responding to and you understand all these other things, that's when, that's when it all comes together. So, when a human and a horse are both in the learning phase of homeostasis, then everyone is on the same page. The calmer the horse and the human are, the more trust you will both have and the safer you will both feel. Even when everyone feels safe, everyone can think clearly at the task at hand and it will be done better. Okay? So that is and so that's what you're going to do you're going to put it all together this is the final deal doesn't matter what you want to do with your horse it just doesn't matter you've got all the you'll have all the information to be successful and thank you wow lucinda that has just been a power-packed webinar <laughs> <laughs> i was a little bit worried about giving so much information in such well, a short time. An hour and three quarters, but that's okay. You know, I mean, yeah. 
that, that you're getting applause from people because you know it's really great i really love how you've put all this information together into the mandala into the quarters because you know um one of the things I've been doing with these webinars is gathering science and gathering Sharon Wilsey's work and gathering learning theories and trying to put that together because it's time for us to move forward in understanding and learning and teaching. And in our, in our um, working with dogs and working with people, we've recognized it. And the horse world, sadly, it has a lot of tradition. Um, and it's time for us to reevaluate tradition in terms of learning theory and understanding neurology how the brain functions and and addressing things from a system that actually is going to work keeping people safe and you know like some of your pictures um where the you know using force um you know it's just pound for pound in the end <laughs> there's a, a huge risk there so um so kim sang is saying hello to you um and so this this has been great and i'm so appreciative that you have put such a great amount of work into your into your presentation and just great illustrations i loved the mayor with the foal that was fabulous is because, that fabulous yeah because some days we realize you know with with every horse is different in their personality and some days they need a mayor to tell them what to do and some days you know it's different. Um, I have one right now and he's um, he's always wondering if he's going to be the one in charge. And so we do have to have that mayor discussion on occasion. <laughs> you know, yeah. but if I did that with my other horse, he would fall on the ground and cry and put his hooves over his head and have a heart attack. So there, there we get into measuring and being able to, and maybe that's another webinar, is to evaluate temperament and personality in terms of how we approach some of these horses. Because it's not a black and white. It's not a straight line. It's some horses need more clarity. Other horses need more sensitivity. Some horses need more time to process. Other horses are so quick that if you don't give them enough to do, they're bored. You know, they're like, wait, come on, let's do more, you know? And, yeah. and we really need to start understanding how to evaluate our horse. So I don't know, do you have a webinar like that on, on evaluating how you would approach the training of different personalities, different. Well, that's interesting because Sharon and I are both working. She she's working on her her thing for horse speak to explain it, and I'm working on it for the mandala to wow. explain it. So we're both working. Yes, we are both working on that because without having a use for this stuff, what's the point? Right. So you know a whole bunch of head stuff. Great. What you know? I need to get the horse to the vet. You know, exactly. that's what I'm interested in, how to use this stuff for use, for a use. Right. And, and, and that's where, you know, we see that with people too, that, you know, I mean, I've like I said, I've taught for 30 years and, and some students, you can only give them one thought and other students can absorb that and they want another and absorb that and they want another and other horses, you know, some of them are really sensitive and you have to be really careful how much you do and others are like, just, you know, yeah, let's have at it. And so that's a whole nother conversation of how, how we kind of apply these ideas in the real world. But, but this information is so important to have in your toolkit to understand what right. basics are. And that's, this has just been, everybody who's been watching has been so excited. And some have said every horse person needs to understand this. So, um, and, and yeah, somebody else is saying also now I understand why my horse lost weight when her horse friend left and she was basically alone. And yeah, you know, I mean, 
it's so great when we can start to recognize what their greatest needs are and so that we may not always be able to satisfy them but at least if we understand it we can work toward that yeah exactly exactly because we're not none of us are going to know everything and none of us are going to know all the answers but if we have some of the basic information we can kind of get close to figuring things out right right that's well, all i try to do it's awesome it's really i love how you've put it together so thank you so much for this presentation it's really well and thank you for inviting me i really love when i get to come on yeah great well we'll have to have you back so uh, just stay tuned <laughs> okay. and we'll find a date all righty all right and stay safe out there and i and i just hope that everything from the fires just gets better and everybody's gets resolved and um and uh and we'll talk to you soon very good and you take care too and uh, take care everybody bye bye, bye.